I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am Dean Detloff. Now I'm Matt Bernico, and it's still Halloween, but I don't know. I don't have any more characters to be. It's still Halloween, and well, as of the time that we're recording this, it's not even quite Halloween. And I have to admit, I don't even know what character I'm going to be. And it is important that I figure it out because I'm going trick or treating with a baby on Sunday, and that means I get all the candy. But I do feel like I have to earn yeah. it a little bit. Not my baby, to be clear, but someone else's baby. <laughs> that's the best. That's the best situation. You can go trick or treating with a baby. That baby can't eat any of the candy. Um, hey, my son is allergic to peanuts, and I'm going to take all of his candy. Nice. Just going to put that out there right now. Yeah. That Sorry. You can have the Smarties. I'll tell him. Man, Halloween is so fun. Uh, my uh, my partner Emily was the nanny for a long time. We got to learn about lots of different ways that people do Halloween, and one of my favorites was she worked for this family where they. Uh, they the rule was they could eat as much candy as they possibly want on Halloween, but that's it. So it's like you can eat as much as your stomach can possibly handle that one day. And then after that, it's all gone. And so they just like eat themselves sick and then it's over. I think that is like the best, just like a child bucking out. <laughs> like yeah. you can have it all. And, and then uh, good luck. That rules. I love that. Um, man, so in uh, so I live in St. Louis. People know this about me. It's not a secret. Uh, in St. Louis, the uh, the local tradition here is that before people give you candy, you have to tell them a Halloween joke. Whoa, I know. I like a that. Lot riding on it. Yeah. So uh, Louis and I, we've been we've been trying to drum up our best jokes, and I gotta tell you, six year olds aren't great great joke tellers. <laughs> uh, so I've been I've been having to feed him a lot of lines, and uh, I think by the time Sunday rolls around, though, he's gonna be ready. You can give him like a good Norm McDonald joke. So like every house takes 10 minutes. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah, we'll really stretch it out. Um, yeah, right now we're going with. Uh, well, here, I'll just, I'm going to try it on, out a new deal. Yeah, I'm ready. OK. Um, what's a ghost's favorite dinner? Hmm. A ghost's favorite dinner. Um, man, I'm trying to think of a food that rhymes with boo. You're going to have to give it to me. Spooketty. Spooketty. That's good. That one yeah. will earn you some Smarties for sure. I feel like there's some other options. You could you could go with like Buzanya. That'd be <laughs> yeah. good too. Buzanya. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta be a pasta though, because ghosts <laughs> historically do love pasta. Booberry pie. Yeah, that's that's one too, I guess. This podcast. What's happened to it? <laughs> this is where we're at I now. Um <laughs> all right. Halloween, it's great, but we're not talking about Halloween this time around. Unfortunately, I wish we were. Instead, we're talking about something. I guess the connection is that it is very scary, which is uh, evangelicalism and its relationship to Donald Trump and Christianity and so on. Uh, recently, you might have seen this article in The Atlantic by Peter Weiner, who is a conservative character we can talk more about later. Um, he published this essay there called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. And it is something um, the subtitle of the article is Christians must reclaim Jesus from his church, which uh, I don't know. We could talk more about that thesis, but <laughs> yeah, uh, the article definitely made the rounds on Twitter. It's uh, I don't know. There's there's some stuff that is good about it, kind of trying to figure out what's going on in evangelicalism. But it is also a really weird uh, contextualizing piece that's trying to kind of say something editorially as well. So it's not just reporting or something like that 
So what's really interesting about it is that it's sort of a, a gesture toward coming to terms with the ways that evangelicalism has really gotten out of hand since Donald Trump, right? And and it has kind of, however you want to put it, it's metastasized, it's mutating, it's transforming, that part is true. Uh, but it's an article that's trying to figure out what has gone wrong with evangelicalism from the perspective of evangelicals. And I think this is almost like a new genre of take <laughs> that is emerging yeah. um, in the last year, right? I mean, it, it was happening under Trump for sure, but uh, now under Biden, I think a lot of evangelicals are just trying to figure out how to rebrand or how to make sense of what has happened in their own tradition and so on. And this is a pretty, I don't know, like a good representative um, take of, of how evangelicals are processing their own uh, <laughs> mistakes, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in this article for sure. Um, and I think most of the analysis is wrong because it mistakes culture for politics. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But I do have to say, if you haven't read it, you should maybe go take a look at it. I, I'm uh, always hesitant to suggest people read anything by a conservative. But this one is really entertaining, at least. Um, again, like I said, the analysis is all wrong. But he, uh, but Wayner goes and interviews all of these like Christian you know, people and pastors <laughs> about their churches. And they're all complaining about how their congregants are upset about them being too woke. And I think that's <laughs> super funny. It's just like... Um, you know, all these dumb pastors who uh, did in large part help create this problem. Now they're suffering from it as well. And I love to see that. <laughs> yeah, it's really rough. It's like very weird to read rough in the sense that, I don't know, it's uh, almost like disturbingly naive at certain points. And, you know, yeah. I understand, like, listen, I'm a Roman Catholic. I get it. Like, I, I'm speaking from a pretty shiny glass house <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but uh, there is something... I don't know, very unique about how evangelicals sort out what they're doing and uh, how they think about what they're doing and so on. I have to admit, maybe this is going to come out in the episode. I have kind of a soft spot for evangelicals, I guess, because I had a brief time of being one. And maybe I just like don't want to be hard on myself. I'm like protecting myself by <laughs> by creating some kind of sympathy or something. But uh, nevertheless, it is still um, surprising to me in 2021 <laughs> that uh, you can be a very big shot, uh, rich um, commentator and still kind of have the opinions that Peter Weiner <laughs> seems to be gleaning from this situation. Yeah, I agree. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at this this big article from Peter Weiner. Um, again, it's called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. You can read it in The Atlantic. It's a pretty it's a it's a big it's a hefty article but it's uh it's been everywhere on social media so you can participate in this cultural moment by going to read it and then listening to us talk about it or just listen to us talk about it that's fine too you don't have to we're not making you read it we're not your teachers i wouldn't have read it if matt didn't tell me to. <laughs> all right so um we're gonna take a look at this article maybe from the perspective of like <laughs> as uh anthropologists or people <laughs> in cultural studies maybe not as uh not as evangelicals ourselves obviously but I think that's the right perspective to think through this piece, because um, if you do it from that perspective, maybe a, a dispassionate, well, not that dispassionate, but a, a more analytical framework, start to see some of the very weird pathologies in conservative thinking and why they inevitably can't get their own diagnosis right and why they keep kind of making the problem. The, they keep making these like sort of situations that they get caught up in. So, um, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at all of this. And if you're thinking, why? Why are we doing any of this? Um, I think it's actually worth paying attention to articles like this every now and again uh, for two reasons. Um, number one, it's evidence of the Christian right trying to rehabilitate itself after being, like, internally decimated by the brain worms of Donald Trump. <laughs> like, you know, all this, like, weird, weird stuff about woke politics and, um, you know, all, all of the weird, like, QAnon stuff that's kind of blend into, the, into, like, the evangelical Christian milieu. This is, um, I think, a really important piece of um, making people um, on the outside of that community maybe like think that like they're recovering or, get, or gain some new semblance of respect for people trying to sort out their problems or whatever. But I think um, I think if we look at it really closely, you can see that really they're up to the same thing again. <laughs> There's nothing really that new about this. Okay, so anyways, we want to be mindful when the Christian right is trying to uh, get an upper hand again. Don't let them do that. It's bad. This is the glass war after all. And number two, articles like this are always trying to parse out like what went wrong um, in evangelicalism. Um, but rightly understood, I think it's clear that we've we've got here is is not anything that's 
you know, an aberration of evangelicalism. It's not something that like is a, a, a fork in the road and it just took the wrong path or something. But I think instead, this is maybe like the logical conclusion of evangelicalism. What you see here is, is um, you know, what it looks like when, when evangelicalism kind of comes to a, a hard stop and just kind of spins its wheels in the mud. So I, I think we have these, these these two things to consider. On the one hand, it's people on the Christian right trying to make themselves not look so so silly after all this Donald Trump stuff. And number two, you see kind of like where evangelicalism ends. Like this is like a, a the ghost of Christmas future for evangelicalism <laughs> or something. So I think it's worth talking about and kind of getting into the into the weeds with some of it here. Um, this is a pretty hefty article, so it might mean we have to read a little bit on the air. And hopefully that doesn't that doesn't bother you. Um, but before we go any further, let me tell you um, a little bit about Peter Weiner. We don't need to say much about him. He's a conservative guy. He writes for The Atlantic. He writes for The New York Times. Um, he has been a part of conservative think tanks. You can look them all up, and it's it's boring and kind of annoying. He created one, uh, but, I think, like a Christian think tank or something. I, I think that's right, yeah. yeah. Something about like an ethics an ethics think tank. Um, but most notably, in his, uh, he, he was in politics for a while. He was a speech a speechwriter for Reagan and both of the Bushes. So it just, I want to, I want to get that out there, so you know what kind of person we're dealing with uh, when they seem to be sort of like having a a moment of moral clarity in this article. They're not really. <laughs> they're 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 not. It's all for show. Well, uh, um, we okay. we can. Uh, it's good to actually pull that connection out too, right? Because um, the article is published in the Atlantic, where also, for example, people like David Frum are editors, right? So there's kind of a Bush speechwriters yeah. alumni club sometimes that you get at the Atlantic, and uh, it's really revealing of how the there's a certain I don't know what it is like exculpatory narrative that gets told over and over again by these folks as they kind of try to like narrate their way out of complicity with the problems that are happening in the world. Right. So David from, if you don't know, he was a a speechwriter for Bush who famously coined the phrase, the axis of evil to try to sell, um, to try to like brand the Iraq war in speeches for George Bush. And, uh, you know, ever since then, David from is like an anti-Trump conservative or whatever, but, uh, is apparently unable to (laughs) make the connection that, maybe lying to a bunch of people about a war that we shouldn't have gone to, like has something to do with (laughs) shaping conservative sentiment (laughs) downstream. Right. And you get the same thing with Peter Weiner, right? This is a guy who uh, wrote speeches for the, for uh, Reagan, you know, the the sort of um, real power drive of neoliberalism. And then later on uh, ended up again, writing for uh, the other evangelical in chief George Bush. So anyway, I just point that out to say, uh, this is a pattern that you get a lot in sort of the, the mm-hmm. commentariat of, of people who were in politics. And it's important not to let those people off the hook, but to say, look, you know, you bear some responsibility for this and you can't just kind of uh, highbrow your way out of <laughs> that kind of uh, blood on your hands or something. Yeah, that's right. The axis of evil, in case you uh, weren't alive for that particular right. <laughs> moment or, or aren't old enough to remember, the axis of evil uh, is Iraq, Iran, North Korea, and uh, Cuba, I believe. <laughs> extremely uh, normal allies, <laughs> all part of the same very tight axis. Yeah, yeah historically, extremely allied with one another. <laughs> Pretty bonkers. Um, man, that's a whole thing to talk about in and of itself. Um, okay, so... This article opens up with this actually fantastically hilarious story, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because uh, it would take it would take a minute. It would take a while to kind of parse it all out. But let me tell you just the overview of the, the beginning, and then we'll kind of get into it here. So the, the article starts off with a story about the election of elders at an evangelical church in northern Virginia. It's a it's a mega church. OK, there you go. Um, it's called McLean Bible Church, I guess, is the is the actual name. And I'm not just adding them here on this podcast to be mean, but because it'll come to play in a second. Anyways, so um, Wainer's telling the story about the election of these um, these elders. And basically, um, there's this kind of like big scuffle within the church during the, the sort of voting time um, where uh, some rumors were spread. <laughs> That, um, okay, a few things that some of the elders that were going to be like elected here or, or confirmed in this particular church, they were they were too woke. They were left of center. They were pushing a social justice agenda, all this kind of stuff. Um, but also, more egregiously, um, there is a rumor that um, that three of the individuals who were nominated to be elders 
were advocating to sell their main <laughs> church building to Muslims and convert it into a mosque. <laughs> okay, I'm not. Listen, I'm uh, I'm very I'm a very serious podcaster here. <laughs> I'm not laughing. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, yeah, that, so you have these uh, claims about wokeness, you have claims about the, the mosque, and um, oh, uh, one congregant in an email that was like circulating around the congregation said, uh, this is a quote from a, a congregant, MBC is no longer McLean Bible Church, it's now nice. Melanin Bible Church. <sighs> Some real racist bullshit. I hate this. Okay. That's where uh, that's where it stops being funny, and it's uh, it's just bad, uh, or maybe it's funny in a very cynical kind of way. Um, okay, so anyways, you have this story. This is kind of how the whole thing opens up, and um, Wayner is like, "What is going on in these churches? Uh, what? Why? Why are people being this way? Um, how is it that um, all these people have come to be so like begrudgingly political and so like backbiting and whatever?" That's that's what he's kind of getting into. Um, he goes on to say this. And this kind of sets the tone for the rest of it. Influential figures such as the theologian Russell Moore and the Bible teacher Beth Moore felt compelled to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. Both were targeted by right-wing elements within the SBC. The Christian Post, an online evangelical newspaper, published an op-ed by one of its contributors criticizing religious conservatives like Platt, Russell Moore, Beth Moore, Ed Stetzer, the executive of, of Wheaton Bible College, Billy Graham Center, as progressive Christian figures who <laughs> commonly champion leftist ideology. <laughs> in a matter of months, four pastors resigned from Bethlehem Baptist Church, a flagship church in Minneapolis. One of those pastors, Brian Pickering, cited mistreatment by elders, domineering leadership, bullying, and spiritual abuse in toxic culture. Political conflicts are hardly the whole reason for this turmoil, but according to news accounts, they played a significant role, particularly on matters having to do with race. So um, you have this one big story about these uh, this wild church uh, electing elders, but then you have this larger trend that he's trying to draw out here that all of these other sort of conservative Christian people are starting to leave their conventions, leaving their denominations, leaving their churches. Um, you know, they're coming forward about uh, toxic culture and whatnot. And um, that's that's what's going on. That's the phenomenon that this article is trying to tackle. Dean, before <laughs> we go any further, what do you think? <laughs> what's going? Yeah, it is wild. I mean, well... It's interesting to read this article. Um, I read it today uh, in light of some recent stuff that's been going on at my alma mater, the evangelical school I went to for my bachelor's degree. Um, yeah, oh, Cornerstone University that's a great is example, the name yeah. of it in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It used to be a Baptist school, and then it was like a non-denominational evangelical school. So like, like when I went there, which was, I started in 2008, uh, the big news was that people were allowed to dance on campus like a couple years before I had come there. So it was that kind of place. Um, anyway, very it, like while I was there, it was a pretty like run of the mill, regular evangelical school. Um, I don't know. Everything that you think about evangelicalism is is there <laughs> at that school. Uh, but very recently they got a new president. And this particular president has like published his his own kind of anti woke agenda manifesto, even using all this language, right? Like talking about race issues, uh, intentionally rolling back like diversity hires or or like diversity policies and so on. And a bunch of professors like either resigned or were fired. Uh, there, there's like a huge kind of controversy happening at the university right now, and it's fascinating to watch because like. Cornerstone, it sort of relies on evangelicalism's ability to be like, I don't know, like really uh, like simmering under the surface, but like very boring on the face of it. Right. Like that's how a lot of evangelical communities are. Um, you might get some like when in 2008, when I was there and Obama was elected, like there were students who like genuinely thought the apocalypse was happening. Right. <laughs> like that was like a real thing. But the school itself was not like, uh, um, I don't know extremely like right-wing in, in its public facing way. I mean, it was right-wing as a school, right? But like it wasn't trying to sort of play a, a political hand or something in, a, in an overt sense. Uh, so anyway, now, now it's kind of reckoning with this, uh, the, exactly this rift that this article is talking about, right? And like you can look at its Facebook, for example, and there's like on the on the Cornerstone Facebook, there's post after post about like how the sports teams are doing and like they're they don't have any engagement. And then there's like a post about this president's inauguration, and there are like almost 200 comments. So it's uh, 
probably like a <laughs> PR intern's worst nightmare at a Cornerstone University right now. But but it's exactly this, right? It's like um, there are all these accusations that like these uh, dangerous CU professors have become too left wing. And to be fair, like some of them are right. <laughs> some of them are left wing. But the uh, the people that they actually accuse are like past presidents, right? Like extremely right wing people or like. I don't know, administrative teams that are like centrist at the very best. Right. So all that to say, I think uh, there is kind of a moment happening, right? There is a, a real um, shakeup going on in evangelicalism. And that is pretty fascinating. Yeah, totally. So, um, you know, earlier I said that this this gets the diagnosis right. wrong, but this is not the part that it gets wrong. <laughs> this is the part that is 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 right. Yeah. Um, I'm also I'm uh, as you're telling that story, Dean. I'm, I'm desperately trying not to commit the sin where I really <laughs> like that bad things are happening to them, but um, <laughs> but I'm failing desperately. <laughs> so pray for me about that, I guess. But uh, I'm enjoying it at this very moment. Um, okay, cool. So this is a real phenomenon. I mean, you can imagine uh, it. It it makes a lot of sense, right? The um, the culture war is real, and like you know. <laughs> It's uh, it's sorry. The culture war is real, but it's all kind of mm-hmm. directed at sort of fake, made up things. Um, so you know, to see them bleed out into um, the spaces that are dominated by by right wing people, like evangelical churches, is not super surprising. Um, and when you are mad about a made up thing, like I don't know, critical race theory, you're being too woke or whatever, um, you can you can you know just say anyone is guilty of that. So it's easy. It's a it's a great space for it. So pretty cool. All right, so here's the thesis of the uh, of the piece here, and um, we can kind of tie these things together because they're all interrelated. So Peter Weiner says, the aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that, that characterizes so much of our politics has found a home in many American churches. As a person of the Christian faith who has spent most of their adult life attending evangelical churches, I wanted to understand the splintering of churches, communities, and relationships. The root of the discord lies in the fact that many Christians have embraced the worst aspects of our culture and our politics. When the Christian faith is politicized, Christians become repositories not of grace, but of grievances. Places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggression and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it's having a devastating impact on Christian faith. Okay. So that's it. That's what he thinks is at the uh, the heart of the discord it's that uh, Christians have just embraced the worst aspects of culture and politics. And um, man, that's a bad thing for religion. Th- this, in, you know, kind of doesn't uh, doesn't even imagine that maybe <laughs> religion is tied up in that as well. But that's that's uh, maybe the point. I, I mean, like I said at the beginning, the article is sort of a mixed bag, right? On the one hand, the analysis is completely off base and it's kind of mistaking one thing for another. But it does note something helpful, right? Evangelicalism is um, is is not even like a is not monolithic, even right. And some of these communities have internal tensions. You know, it's I think I, I mean we're probably guilty of this as much as anybody on the left. But like evangelical churches are not just uniformly conservative. They have like mm-hmm. all these like very bizarre, you know, raging and roiling conservative factions within them that uh, you know are often at odds with one another. And, and that's actually quite interesting too to see how that all plays out. That's a that's a very diplomatic and like uh, and academic way of saying <laughs> I love to see these people. Yeah, out. I mean, it is interesting too though to trace uh, how some of those um, differences or disagreements have developed over over even the course of our own lifetime. I guess the things that we have uh, direct experience with, right? Like, um, like when I was in yeah. Cornerstone. I feel like the big cultural boogeyman of uh, evangelicalism was postmodernism. That was the big thing. So it was like there's <laughs> there are people yeah. out there who are out to get you and they believe in relativism or they think there's no such thing as truth or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and then at the same time, there was kind of an evangelical movement of people reading postmodern stuff or like postmodern theologies and so on. But like in a conservative kind of way. Right. Um trying to think through whatever, I don't know, like whatever this cottage industry <laughs> of church and postmodern philosophers were doing, there was like all, all kinds of publishing wings set up. Some of them still exist, I guess, to kind of churn out like book after book about why postmodernism and, and evangelicalism are fine. So like that kind of uh, difference, which is basically a conversation internal, mostly to conservatives, I think 
I think there's more to be said about evangelicalism. It is an extremely weird thing. And there is such a thing, I want to say, as a progressive totally. kind of evangelicalism. Maybe we could talk more about that much later. But uh, on the whole, right, it is a conversation among conservatives. And uh, all that to say, now, those same kind of tensions are like ratcheted up a thousandfold, but it's not postmodernism anymore. It's critical race theory, right? Which is like a term that no evangelical knew four years ago, <laughs> had, had never heard in their entire life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, like race, I think we've talked about this with a hundred experts on the show in the past, right? Race has always been part of the construction of evangelical identity and so on. Um, but to kind of make it so uh, obvious and to uh, put it front and center in the way that evangelicals have now, I think has created like a real situation, (laughs) a kind of rift situation that, you know, Mm -hmm. in in the past, these might've been like dramatic tensions. And in some cases, you know, they were quite dramatic, uh, but there is, there's almost like a schism happening in evangelicalism on the whole that maybe wasn't as uh as much of a fissure um, 10 years ago or something. It's so hard. It's so hard to talk about because it's like, you know, like when Obama was elected, there was tons of evangelical racism, right? Lots of evangelical white supremacy coming out of the woodwork. So I don't want to like create the impression that, okay, 10 years ago, everyone was just talking about like relativism and like now they're talking about race. Like that's not the case, but uh, there's something like, I don't even know how to put it. I don't, like all the adjectives that come to mind are not quite right. Like I want to say it's like uglier, but that's not true. <laughs> it was ugly like 10 years ago. I want to say uh, <laughs> more dangerous, but that's also not true because this is also sort of the fruit of that very dangerous thing that happened. But I do think that there's something sort of, uh, you know what it is? This is what it is. In uh, in Marxist materialist philosophy, there's this kind of um sort of way of talking about how quantitative problems can become qualitative problems where like, like if, uh, if two cars run into each other at an intersection, that's like, you know, a bad coincidence, a bad accident. But like if, uh, you know, a hundred cars run into each other at that intersection over the course of a week, well, that's like a structural problem. Like the numerical problem becomes like a qualitative problem. And obviously like racism has always been a qualitative mm-hmm. problem in evangelicalism, but it's almost like the pile up is just like piling up more and more and more such that, you know, we're like way beyond the point where you could even install a traffic light or something if ever that was possible. Right. Like it's just a disaster, a very, very bad car accident. <laughs> A good metaphor. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, so, so that there's a lot going on there and we'll kind of come back to it more in a minute. Um, but the, the theme that, that Dean just kind of brought out here too, that like you couldn't even add a traffic stop <laughs> that wouldn't help. I think is actually a really important one and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, okay. But Peter Weiner, um, uh, a guy, uh, a conservative intellectual, if you will, <laughs> I, I guess I will. Um, <laughs> when you write this kind of pieces, you have to make an account for like the ways that religion and politics, you know, either go together or don't go together or like how they're oriented in the world. You know, there's sort of like a methodological kind of part of all of these types of articles. And they're usually the part that are most egregiously wrong. Um, and this article is no exception. So I'm going to read this piece here that kind of knits together uh, the way that Weiner thinks that kind of politics and um, religion may- might sit. And it's actually, I think, very bizarre. Okay, so he says this. How is it that evangelical Christianity has become, for too many of its adherents, a political religion? (laughs) (laughs) The historian George Marsden told me that political loyalties can sometimes be so strong that they create a religious-like faith that overrides or even transforms a more traditional religious faith. You don't say. (laughs) I've never heard this before. Okay. Now, this next sentence is a really challenging one, (laughs) and I don't know. I'm going to have a hard time getting through it again. The United States has largely avoided the most virulent expressions of such political religions. None has succeeded for very long, at least. Bush speechwriter himself says the U.S. has avoided the most virulent expressions of such political religions. It is. It is bonkers. I have no idea how you can actually believe this statement is true. And I have no idea how anyone at how I mean, I guess I know how someone at the Atlantic would let this slide. But like, are you are you kidding me? It's such a bonkers way to think about religion because it presupposes religion and politics 
mm-hmm. and culture is like these like sort of separate domains, these like these perfect spherical bubbles that just do not uh, often, you know, eclipse one another or something. But that's mm-hmm. clearly not the case. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, as a as a uh, as as a speechwriter for you know two Bushes and Reagan, like who is alive for for the proud pronouncement of so many evangelicals of, of Barack Hussein Obama. You can't, you can't forget Hussein. Like, I mean like that, that's it. Like that's <laughs> the anti-Muslim sentiment of, of so many evangelicals during that, that uh, Obama moment is mm-hmm. like, how could you possibly miss that? How could you not think that that is not also a pretty virulent expression of political religion? It is just such a bonkers way to think. I mean, not, not to mention, yeah. not to mention every other, <laughs> every other example of this, like, um, the ways that uh, Christianity underpins the genocide of indigenous people or of like chattel slavery yeah. of black people. Like, I mean, come on, you've got to be <laughs> kidding me. Like read a yeah, book. I mean, like I said, just the, the profound irony of being a person who wrote speeches for Bush who like, you know, like there are speeches where George Bush literally says like, it's us, the Christian West versus everyone else. Right. <laughs> like it is yes. literally a theocratic Absolutely. attempt to rule the United States. Like, I don't know. It's, it's so like intentionally stupid to say something like this if you have that kind of background. And, uh, you know, the one nice thing about this article is like sometimes I feel bad like dunking on people who uh, are like well-meaning but, but but naive or whatever. But I do not feel that way about Peter Wayner. <laughs> like this is just, right. you know, like you have to no. go out of your way to be foolish enough to say something like, well, I don't know, like, I talked to George Marsden, the historian, and he told me, like, sometimes people let their politics get in the way of their religion, and, like, that was news to me. It's like, who are you? Just the weirdest the weirdest <laughs> uncle at your uh, your Thanksgiving dinner who's like, this is the first time hearing of it. I don't know. <laughs> talk to, talk <laughs> yeah. to a second historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh I think it's very bad. That's the hot take, I guess, about this. But I think it's also interesting, too, because, like, you know, evangelicalism does have this weird uh, contradiction internal to it where, like, on the one hand, it sees um, faith as a kind of it does see it as a separate domain. Right. Um, It's like I'm coming back to the heart of worship. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just you and Jesus. (laughs) You're you're there in the moment of the altar call with the spotlight on you. Right. It's just you and God. There's this kind of uh, privatization that happens. But on the other hand, it's that private moment that actually enables this like overwhelmingly public expression of what it means to be a Christian, to kind of live out that like your fidelity to that private commitment or whatever it might be uh, such that like your whole life becomes a matter of figuring out whether or not something is Christian or not. Right. Like you get upset if Starbucks doesn't have a Christmas tree on their cup or whatever, because you know, that's, (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. secularism on the rise, you know? So it's like, Peter Wayner wants you to believe that he's never heard of the left behind books, right? Like it's that kind of thing that you're like, okay, this is extremely duplicitous. Like somebody is lying to you (laughs) in this article and it is definitely the person who wrote speeches for George W. Bush. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay. So uh, let's bracket that for a moment. I mean, not too bracketed, but let's just come back to it later because it it kind of undergirds the rest of this. But um, all right. Say, say we're to believe Peter Wayner. And uh, this is actually the most, uh, you know, the time when politics and religion are most egregiously mixed up. Um, Why would that be, do you think? So (laughs) it's Donald Trump. That's why he thinks that's the case. (laughs) So it's not evangelicalism. It's not, you know, um, it's it's not the internal logics of Christianity or uh, the fascist desire of the masses or like whatever. It's just that Donald <laughs> Trump was president. And he made it worse. And like, that's kind of what we have to deal with here. Um, yeah. So this is this is a quick um, a quick addition to um, the conversation that Wayner had with George Marsden um, about this whole thing. So this is um, this is a, a quote from Marsden. Um, OK. When Trump was able to add open hatred and resentment to the political religious stance of true believers, it crossed a line, said Marsden. Tribal instincts seemed... I I deeply do not like when people say the word tribal to mean something bad. I think that's extremely frustrating. Okay. 
Just want to get that out there. <laughs> Tribal instincts seem to have become overwhelming. The dominance of political religion over professed religion is seen in how, for many, the loyalty to Trump became a blind allegiance. The result is that many Christian followers of Trump have come to see the gospel of hatred, resentment, vilification, put-downs, and insults as the expression of their Christianity for which they too should be willing to fight. Okay, so George Marsden, he thinks that Donald Trump is kind of at the, at the base of some of this. And, okay, is he wrong? Yes. Trump is not at the base of the bad things in evangelicalism that we're seeing right now. But Trump is also not unrelated to the particular mutations I think that you see within evangelicalism right now. And I think yeah. that's like worth saying, right? Um, I, I think that a lot of, I mean, for, for, if for no other reason that, that the Trump regime pumped in, you know, a gazillion dollars in the social media to kind of like convince people of these new vocabulary words. I mean, I think that you have to recognize that there, that Trump is not uh, not innocent in any of this for sure, right? Of course, of course he's there. And um, the way that he kind of partnered with so many very bizarre evangelical people and even Christians who are not evangelical um, are really important. Um, but mm -hmm. I don't think that's like the root of the problem mm -hmm. as this article. Yeah, I mean, figuring posits. out Trump's functional relationship to evangelicalism, I think is something that is going to take people a long time to really sort out. But like, Oh, yeah. obviously there's there is something there that is unique right like i don't know there's always been a kind of really disturbing cynicism at the heart of evangelicalism um uh I, you know we talked to tad delay a long time ago about this and i think that he's right it's like evangelicals would vote for the devil if the devil promised to do whatever they told them you know or whatever he told them etc so like yeah th that that part precedes Donald Trump. But I think it's maybe it's just that sort of saying the quiet part out loud thing or something like um, there's something about Trump that uh, certainly, I don't know, lends permission or legitimacy to things that might have been uh, quiet or might have been, um, I don't know, kind of subterranean or something. Uh, or it's like it's the release of the id of evangelicalism in a public way or however you want to put it. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but all Shame. that to say, you know, it's like, yeah, we have to find a way to account for Trump, but certainly not by seeing him as, um, you know, <laughs> he may be a turning point historically, but not a turning point in terms of like bringing in some kind of unprecedented logic to evangelicalism that wasn't present before. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, um, Trump, Trump is a, you know, it's like, a yeah, it's like a translation machine, you know, it's like, it's a way it, it's, uh, it's something that helps, um, all these, you know, conservative evangelicals convert their very bizarre internal desires into external signs, right? And I think yeah. that's maybe a, a way to think about it. Um, and, and, you know, and that in turn changes the internal desires and, like, it's a whole big downward spiral for sure, but <laughs> it's all there. I mean, it's, it's an important mm -hmm. part of the story, but it's not the story. Um, okay, so, so Trump is bad. We got that. Um, but also culture is bad. <laughs> As it turns out, <laughs> if you wouldn't, you wouldn't have guessed that probably. Um, so he goes on to talk with a person named Alan Jacobs, who is a, a, a quote, distinguished professor of humanities in the honors program at Baylor University. Baylor is a Christian school. It's like, you know, of evangelical schools, Baylor is like the research university. So the, the Notre Dame of Baptists. That's right. The Notre Dame of Baptists. Um, so this is what Alan Jacobs, a distinguished professor, says. Culture catechizes culture teaches us what matters and what views we should take about what matters our current political culture jacobs argued has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing uh which are television radio facebook twitter and podcasts among them <laughs> that's it uh people who want to be connected to their political tribe the people again get a new word my guy uh the people they uh, they think that they're like them, the people who they think are on their side. They subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour. Um, so that's kind of that's uh, what what Alan Jacobs is adding here, too. So there's this Donald Trump guy for sure. But then also there are all of these uh, media platforms that uh, catechize uh, people into thinking a particular way. I think it's very ironic that... Um, <laughs> For a guy who is trying to uh, say that evangelicalism has never been uh, has never been political, he cho he chooses a uh, a political word to talk about. Uh, <laughs> or I'm sorry, he chooses a religious word to talk about the politicization of people's minds. That's pretty great, and anyway, an extremely evangelical one, right? The uh, yeah. that that dastardly culture uh, sneaking in to tear you away. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so uh, he says, uh, this is more from Alan Jacobs. On the flip side, many churches aren't interested in catechesis at all. They focus instead on entertainment because entertainment is what keeps people in their seats and coins and the offering plate. So uh, the quote from uh, Alan Jacobs goes on to say, so if people are getting one kind of catechesis for half an hour per week and another for dozens of hours per week, which one do you think will win out? So <laughs> this like explanation of culture is very funny because, I mean, the, the meta view here is that the problem comes down to one of a strong culture in a, like a really weak church to which like the solution is just like, well, you got to just make the church stronger. Um, and there are a lot of like very weird assumptions kind of bound up in this particular view of culture. Like, um, that culture like that that culture precedes politics right that that's like what comes first here um culture is the bad thing like you know giving people all these weird political views um it also assumes that like evangelicalism has no inherent political inclination within sort of its structure it's again just culture is 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 jamming those those political views down your throat through facebook or whatever which is true in some ways but also very untrue in other ways um and then finally, I think that also assumes that like what evangelicalism is doing now is like it's a break. It's an aberration. It's not uh, it's not, you know, the church as it's supposed to be. Right. It's um, this is the church waning and the culture kind of growing stronger. Um, and, uh, you know, it should be the other way around, I think, is is maybe the the assumption here. So there's I yeah. mean, a lot of stuff going on here that is all, I think, extremely strange. I don't know. It, it's just a, it's such a really unusable idea of culture. Um, you know, it's uh, a lot of a lot of words that are kind of right in some ways, but really no overarching theory uh, to kind of knit these things together. These are just more buzzwords. I feel like they're being thrown at me. <laughs> For sure. I mean, it's also uh, I don't know. It's because there's this kind of stark differentiation between culture and evangelicalism. Um, it just enables a maybe a, an easy heuristic device that doesn't really let you figure out what's going on. And you know, the the trouble is like. There's a moment of truth, which is to say, whatever your pastor says in their sermon on Sunday is not going to compete with like whatever Tucker Carlson says every night on Fox News, right? Like, yeah, you can have the best pastor in the world, but like you're just not going to beat that kind of formation. And that's true. I mean, accurate. <laughs> what a great postmodern point, <laughs> right? <laughs> the the postmoderns were right all along. Uh, Foucault um, was right. You, you're going to be formed by these discourses around you way more than you're going to be formed by the intentional half hour sermon of your, uh, Bible believing pastor. Um, at the same time though, like, uh, Tucker Carlson and people like him don't emerge in a vacuum, right? Like they also are sort of propped up by, uh, an evangelical hegemony, um, which, uh, again, Wayner would know all about having been around during the rise of the uh, the moral majority and so on. So I think it's frustrating because it's like, it's true. Um, a church, even the best church, cannot compete with kind of uh, the average way in which people go about the world. Uh, but at the same time, like, it doesn't really take into account the fact that evangelicalism has been creating the conditions for those culture. Like, it's not just the case that evangelicalism creates entertainment like <laughs> entertainment is also um i don't know like profoundly bound up and yeah exactly like it's catechizing uh it's i don't know like the way in which that we we try to like think through how our culture i don't know changes our opinion and so on like you can just imagine peter wayner sitting at home and like not appreciating a like coca-cola commercial about diversity right which it's <laughs> like yeah, Coca-Cola is bad, but like, <laughs> I don't know, the way that it's catechizing people and so on, uh, my guess is if you're like a weird conservative, you're going to take away all the exactly wrong measures and you're just going to develop the same kind of paranoia that like yeah. evangelicals have always had about the the boogeyman of whatever critical race theory or something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in this past year, um, since the George Floyd, Floyd uprising was last year, um, there has been a record amount of... Um, money like ad money spent on uh on including diversity campaigns right. within major advertising or whatever right so of course there's a lot a lot for uh these folks to be mad about i guess but like i mean on the other hand the the particular culture they're talking about here the one that makes people like you know angry or that creates the culture of grievance within the church i mean for a large in, in a large way like if you're if you're taking in conservative media on facebook or on uh, I don't know, 
you OAN or whatever, like in in a in a big way, you are consuming the culture that evangelicalism has created, right? Like mm-hmm. like you said, these these things don't happen in a bubble. Evangelicalism enables a lot of this uh you know this this type of comportment towards the world, and to not recognize that is very bizarre. Um, again, like yeah. you know, you think you think of them as these great spheres that are disconnected. <laughs> I guess this is what you get, but um, I don't know. Evangelicalism is really bound up in conservative culture in ways that uh, you can't easily disentangle or just say like, well, they're separate. So I don't know. It's, yeah, uh, you know, it's weird. It is weird. One really weird thing, too, about this article is like the one voice that comes through in here that is good and worth listening to is Kristen Cubas Demay. Yeah. Who, uh, if you don't know, she's cool. She wrote the book Jesus and John Wayne. I don't know. We should get her on the podcast sometime if she has time. Um, actually, you can listen to a cool interview with her at a podcast from the school that I went to, the Institute for Christian Studies, called uh, the podcast is called Critical Faith. She did a cool interview with them about uh, Donald Trump and and how it relates to her work. But anyway, you know, Wayner is interviewing all these people, George Marsden, Alan Jacobs, etc. So he interviews Kristen Cobas Dumain, and she has, uh, I think, the only like voice of reason <laughs> in the entire article, which is she she has done all this research on evangelicalism and what it has produced. And her thesis is that, you know, Trumpism uh, is not a total aberration, right? You can kind of understand it as a fruit of evangelicalism, not a betrayal of it and so on. Um, and uh, the weirdest thing about it is like, he quotes her and allows her to say what she says, but like immediately forgets everything that she told him. (laughs) Like uh, she talks about how evangelicalism is, you know, formed by this opposition toward um, like, well, I I guess an affirmation of very bad ideas about gender, about race and so on. Right. And like, this has always been the case, you know, she, she does a really good job kind of pulling that out, even in these quotations, Um, And she also talks about how like evangelicals always want to talk about the Bible, how they're biblical and how like culture is is out to get you. Right. Like she's basically calling out other parts of the article in her own sort of uh, piece. But yeah, it just is totally lost on Wayner. So I don't know (laughs) how that happened either, but uh, it's a very weird contradiction in the article. It is. You know, there's there's a larger rhetorical thing going on here that I think is actually really fascinating, fascinating with Kristen Kobe Dumais. is like because of the popularity of her book, um, which I haven't read, which is a mistake of mine, I think. Um, but the, the popularity of her book means that like she is a person that I think like conservative and evangelical Christians are starting to like. Uh, I mean, they have to they have to kind of treat her work seriously because it's popular because people it's like actively critiquing them. And as they're doing this whole kind of dance of like rehabilitating themselves, it seems like that that's something they have to deal with like in a serious way, right? So you see people like the 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 rise and fall of Mars Hill. They bring her on the show too to talk about you know, whatever, um, Mark Driscoll and about how he's like a scumbag and you see her come up here too. And in each of these cases, like they refer to her as like a source that they can draw from to kind of, to, you know, to be introspective and to learn about maybe like what's bad about them. But at the end of the day, like her critique is probably, is, is too scathing. So they have to kind of just like write her off in one way or another. And it mm-hmm. must be, it must be maddening to just be like cited by all of these people, but not taken seriously. And I hate that. I hate that for her. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me really frustrated. Um, but like, yeah, you see, you see her come up time and time again, and she ends up becoming like, uh, she just becomes like a, a prop in the room to say like, look, we are actually really considering what's bad about evangelicalism. Cause look, we've talked about this book. Um, but really nobody's actually, no evangelicals are really considering it. Cause if they did, they'd have to like, you know, not be evangelicals anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, great. Let's talk about the conclusion and really drive this point home. Um, the conclusion is this. Something has gone amiss. Pastors know it as well as anyone and better than most. The Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus who has won their hearts and who long ago won mine, needs to be reclaimed. Period. So the conclusion of the article is the conclusion that evangelicals it's the, it's the only conclusion that evangelicals can ever get to. Um, you just got to get Jesus back at the center of everything. And that's unsurprising. And also it's extremely frustrating because you can't, <laughs> as a person outside looking in, you can just see sort of the wheels of evangelicalism spinning. Like they're a car stuck in the mud. <laughs> it's always just sort of like more of the same. Really. We just need, we just need Jesus at the, at the center of it. We just need to get back. Just like you said, Dean, get back to the heart of worship. Mm-hmm. And like that's the thing that's gonna fix all of this, like of the the rotten culture and like the 
um, the the culture of grievances and like I mean, well, it's way worse than that. But that just just concluding that like really we just need to get back to the core of our religion is such a is such a frustrating thing to hear somebody say when considering evangelicalism because that's the only thing evang- evangelicals can say. Like that's the bottom of every critique they can have. Because if they were to say something else, evangelicalism is wrong, whatever, right? It kind of undoes the whole movement. Um, it it uh, displaces the individual in Jesus within, within the within the grand cosmology here, and it is so frustrating because like this is it. This is the only critique that evangelicals can ever really give, um, and this that you can't get past this. They're gonna recreate the same problem every single time. That you know, there's a. There's something that bad that happens within this whole way of thinking. And uh, no, it's not actually us that's wrong. It's our corrupt churches. It's our culture. It's all of these political things that are happening. We just really need to get back to Jesus. And they can't ever recognize that maybe the particular way they believe in Jesus is exactly their problem. <laughs> but uh, that's why it's so frustrating to me. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's you see the same thing with like the way that he talks about the Bible in here as well, right? That if we just go back to a kind of biblical Christianity, everything will be fine. Um, but like, that's exactly the problem, right? (laughs) Is, uh, there are like legions of pastors in the United States who will tell you that like being a good biblical Christian means voting for Donald Trump. Right. Um, and I I don't know, like those are the same people who said being a good biblical Christian means voting for George W. Bush, you know, and, and on down the line. And I think it's like, it's really telling that, uh, this is the, the one, um, kind of, uh, (laughs) I don't know how to put it like this is always the defense mechanism rather than the liberating mechanism of evangelicalism. Yeah. Right. It's like you just sort of cling to the those two things, the the biblical truth that is like overly simple. Right. A kind of childish way of reading the Bible. And then you cling to uh, a vision of Jesus that actually doesn't really open you up to an encounter with like what's happening with Jesus in the Bible or in the Gospels or whatever but actually closes down any way of understanding, like, I don't know how, maybe, like, if you tried to take Jesus seriously again or something, you would find that you shouldn't be creating, like, conservative think tanks, right? <laughs> like, um, there's this kind of wild way in which Jesus becomes the uh, the shield uh, that you use to actually avoid even encountering those radical parts of the Christian tradition, Right. So without trying to say there's a true Christianity underneath evangelicalism, (laughs) I think it's important to recognize, too, that um, the Wainer strategy here of being like, we just got to get back to the Bible is uh, exactly the kind of strategy that is just going to, I don't know, like put you right back on track to have this contradiction emerge again and again and again over and over. It's like it's baked into it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, I like the way that you put it, though, that you make Jesus into Jesus into a shield that like ends up guarding the whole system of oppression that keeps you kind of in this in this mode. You know, you don't think about the ways that, you know, your particular hermeneutic project or whatever has like created extremely bad desires in you or the way that you like blindly accept some kind of like weird political orthodoxy um, surrounding conservatism. Those things are off the table. It just always has to be about Jesus and kind of like whatever. And, uh, and and for that reason, you'll be locked in this kind of forever. <laughs> it right. is uh, right now I'm convincing myself how important deconstruction is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe uh, with some with some heavy qualifications with a with an asterisk and a, a thousand paragraphs after. But still, I mean, I, I get why people kind of who are emerging from evangelicalism kind of go through that process of taking things apart and how messy that could possibly be, because like. You concede that you just you get locked in this kind of mode of thinking and you can't yeah. escape unless you really like disavow some things. Yeah, I think so. I said at the beginning of the episode, I also have like a soft spot for some evangelicals. And maybe this is where it comes out, too, because, you know, like I said, I was an evangelical once. Maybe I'm just trying to save my own ego or something. But like I think a lot of like rank and file evangelicals are like painfully earnest, literally to a fault, like. You know, they are like trying their best to live out a system of thinking that is like contradictory through and through, like paradoxical in the worst possible way. Right. It's like a bunch of stuff that cannot go together. But nevertheless, you're like forced to make it go together in your life. And it creates all kinds of uh, problems like psychological problems, relationship problems, theological problems, whatever they might be. Right. And especially political ones. And I have a soft spot for people who are like 
genuinely at odds with it, whether they're it's like they were born in an evangelical family and are trying to figure it out or like, you know, whatever they found it later on and so on. Uh, I think because I just remember what it was like to be like, well, I believe the Bible is the ultimate truth and there's like nothing wrong with it. And uh, when you start taking that seriously, you end up with weird opinions like maybe kings are bad, maybe all leaders are bad and so on. Right. And there is a kind of tradition of progressive evangelicalism that I do think kind of falls outside of like the Trumpy stuff. Like there's kind of a way of articulating evangelicalism that gets outside of that. But like it is profoundly minoritarian. And if you ask me also profoundly confused you know it's like my my sympathies are are not an admission of like and also it's like a very good thing in the world i guess so much as it's like i get that like life is hard and figuring out what to do with it is hard and like i get it (laughs) but that's all more empathy maybe than sympathy i don't know it's hard to figure out but evangelicalism is weird yeah for sure well it's true uh evangelicalism is weird and there is a there is maybe a, a progressive type of evangelicalism um, like you said, I mean, I guess it, there there must be because we've both kind of gone through it. But uh, at the same time, you have to recognize how those conditions have to be just right. <laughs> it's a yeah, it's an impossible needle to thread. Uh, were you a teenager in two thousand eight? Did you go to Cornerstone? <laughs> <laughs> All of those things you have to have just just so, or else you're going to get stuck and you're going to be a, a George Bush forever kind of person. Right. Well, and also like neither of us are evangelicals now, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's it true. That's what it is. Well, I mean, I don't know. To me, I I mean, this is this is my own wild speculation. I mean, there are there are currently people who are evangelicals and are like progressive people. Like, I don't know, Jim, yeah. Jim Wallace or whatever, right? Um, but at the same time, uh it, to me, it, like evangelicalism, like sort of like the left evangelical wing or progressive evangelicalism, however you want to frame that, it always seems like a line of flight away from evangelicalism, right? The, yeah, yeah. The uh the, the progressive evangelical to Episcopalian pipeline is, is a real one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated assemblage of like moving pieces in people's brains. It is tough mm-hmm. for sure. You're right. Yeah. I guess uh, one, here's one trivia piece you can get out of this podcast episode that is not related to anything that we're talking about. Um, the one cool, the coolest evangelical in the world is a uh, Juan Stam who died not so long ago, but uh, we've talked about him a little bit on the show in the past, but he is uh, he went to Wheaton um, and then moved to Costa Rica and became an evangelical liberation theologian. And he was like friends with all the cool guys. He taught uh, Fidel Castro how to read the book of Revelation, just like a wild character. So anyway, there's one good evangelical in the world. His name is Juan Stam. And I don't know. You can go down the rabbit hole with him, I guess. That's it. That's yeah. the one piece of trivia you can go. There's an evangelical liberation theologian out there. <laughs> it's good trivia. He would be completely unidentifiable to... Uh... <laughs> to the evangelicals that are talking about in this article, but that's okay. Yeah. All right, I, I point him out because he's from the United States. Cause uh, just to make another big asterisk, I guess actually like in Latin America, there are a ton of evangelicals that are like genuinely progressive and cool. Yeah. Um, there's lots of bad ones too, but lots of, uh, they have, there's like a different expression of evangelicalism that can lead people to be like supportive of Hugo Chavez, for example, or whatever. Like yeah. it's a, a different situation, but Juan Stam is from the U S so that's why I'm singling him out. Well, it's 59 minutes into this episode. So it's a good time to say, yeah, we did just mean American evangelicals only in this whole conversation. <laughs> yeah. North American, yeah, exactly. North American evangelicals, I guess, to be inclusive. <laughs> I'm sure there's a bunch of and, wild and excluding Mexico. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, we should have said that 59 minutes ago, but listen, we can't. Um, we can't go back in time. If only we had something that we could use to kind of like cut and chop and screw our audio, but we don't. There's nothing like that nope. that exists, so we'll just have to kind of put it here at the end. That's right. Uh, and what a great note to end on um, with an admission of failure and technological <laughs> inability. Um, <laughs> that feels right. Uh, if you like this podcast, and we know that you did, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And if you do that, you can join a Discord where people are talking all the time about this and other stuff. You can listen to another podcast that we do semi-regularly <laughs> uh, called The Lock-In, where we talk about uh, current events and do dumb jokes and so on. Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive, heaven come.
come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.